0: Welcome back to Who Speaks Podcast. Today, I'm not alone. It's 1am currently in Sydney because I'm speaking with someone from the Northern Hemisphere. Danny Bregi, all the way in Massachusetts in the United States of America. Danny is an entrepreneur. He's a medical device founder, an archaeologist, and a world traveler. He's also a good friend of mine and a D member of our community. And I feel like this introduction is not doing him any justice at all. As I mentioned, it is one AM in Sydney and very, very early in the morning for Danny. So do excuse us if we're not as articulate as we usually are. So welcome Danny, welcome to Who Speaks podcast. And how does it feel to be officially the first guest on the pod?
1: It feels amazing. I really love the fact that you've done it. I love the fact that you've brought so many people together. You really are inspirational oh, and thank you. big life goals for me big life goals because um, for a really long time, I have wanted to engage in an open discussion um, publicly, you know, Mm -hmm. with another Mandaean, particularly a Mandaean woman. And it would have been really cool if it was from one halfway around the
0: world. Through the Mandaean groups, you've been just an incredible reservoir of hope and support. And as a man, I think it's really important that Mandan women have that back up as well. But before we river into any further discussion, I just want to acknowledge the Capricorn clan of the Darug nation on which I stand. And I also want to go beyond acknowledgement and saying that I support the Uluru Statement from the Heart to achieve justice for First Nations people. And it also speaks about enshrining a First Nations voice in our constitution. And I also want to extend this invitation to you for you to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that you're standing on all the way in Massachusetts.
1: I absolutely love that you've done that. And um, I completely support any and all movements um, to support the culture, the rights, and the incredible history and sacrifice of indigenous people Mm. around the world. Um, I live in Woburn, Massachusetts, it is one of the first settled cities, towns, I -hmm. should say, in the United States, 1642. And the native peoples were called the Aboriginians, and Mm -hmm. they're absolutely gorgeous lake right up the street from my house called Horn Pond. And like many of the bodies of water, like so many Cultures, just like Mandaeans, it is a sacred place. It is a place of myth and a place of healing as well as a place of energy um, for people. And I was actually, because you asked me, I was reading up on all the stories, which I haven't uh, actually read up on in like 20, 22 years since we moved into this house. We actually okay. went to Woburn Center and they had a huge um, basically they all the new residents of the town get to like watch like an old school slideshow about like the, the, the history of the, the history. city.
0: Yeah that's amazing.
1: Yeah and it's it's really amazing learning about the people who are here to begin with and the fact that um, the house I live in is in fact the second most historic house in the entire town and oh, wow. um, you know literally the family that built their enterprise and mm-hmm. had this house we're building it on, you know, uh, a, a very, you know, tarnished legacy of, um, you know, uh, American colonization of this place. However, uh, the natives here did extend a lot of peace and gratitude to the newcomers here. Mm-hmm. And although we have not returned it in kind, their legacy shines on, and I hope that we can do justice for what they sacrificed, so that we could be here.
0: Absolutely. And I think that resonates across most Indigenous communities all around the world. Actually, I saw a tweet by Jimmy Barnes. He's a rock singer. He's a Scottish immigrant as well. He's based in Australia. Um, Mm -hmm. And he he tweeted, he summed up Australia's diversity and heritage in literally four words. Um, And he tweeted saying, if you're an Australian, your ancestry is either Aboriginal, convict, refugee or immigrant
1: absolutely and i think the united states is exactly the same really no more no less and we mm-hmm. just have the addition of the you know slave and and, and migrant worker populations That's and right. you know indentured servitude and the like and uh i suppose my uh, entire upbringing as an iraqi you know you can either be very sort of bitter looking back at the things that have been done to your people. But mm. then you look at this long line of history of people who came before you and being an immigrant in the United States, it's um, sort of a rite of passage to get hazed. Mm. It can be especially hard if there's some mass event, let's say like nine 11 that really accentuates Dude, it Yes, and, and takes all of the focus off of the traditional um, I guess targets, which would be Latinos and African Americans, and you know, for a very brief but significant moment in everybody's psyche, um, you know, Middle Easterners, despite all of our efforts and futility, you know, if you're uh, from a minority or not, you really did feel a sense of solidarity. Um, you know, you question a lot about your identity and and how on earth could these people mm. just on a dime flip and and just start targeting people based on uh an event and not really understand the history of the people where they
0: come you in the us it's huge like you have this centrality of the wall you know in particularly through the trump administration you have this constant fixation with security um whether it's through citizenship border control forced migration you know you have the whole ordeal with the dreamers i I just Mm -hmm. can't imagine what it's like as a young person living through that so are you a first-generation refugee, or were you born in the states?
1: I am a first-generation, so meaning I was born um, in Iraq. My family all come from um, all come from uh, El Amara, mm. so uh, in the south, and beautiful legacy associated with them. And um, you know, as leaders in the Madain community, as uh, jewelers as well, but really just as being very compassionate. Strong people who led a lot of people through extremely difficult times, and mm. um, I guess just some base posts really refer to. You know, Mandeans have never really numbered more than a hundred thousand, and we've been whittled all the way down to maybe ten 000 or twenty thousand. So really, there's like this Goldilocks zone of being yes. either too big to, you know, kind of uh, really handle the the pressures of. Um, sticking out and becoming a target and becoming too small where you can't really sustain yourself. Yeah. And that zone has is, is really been sustained by um, us being spread out. So Mandaeans didn't always necessarily know each other, but they knew each other's clans. So they knew right. of each other. And um, that's kind of how words spread and how we protected each other. And when you ask our elders, We have never gone more than 25 to 50 years, meaning every generation, some calamity, genocide, Mm. catastrophe, pogrom has befallen us somewhere or another, whether it Mm. was cholera, whether it was persecutions. Um, It really is something that has been very consistent. And you see this in the culture and the psyche of the people. And, um, you know, it's amazing how diverse the Mandan experience is just within this small community
0: oh, for sure.
1: um, and it's, it's a reflection of um, you know the Middle East itself and I it's kind of my belief that minorities act as um, this buffer between all these major powers because we specialize in small things and we're very diplomatic and we keep communities together so I think my uh, grandparents really upheld that legacy and so when the economy improved and you saw this very, you know, Western, you know, pro, um, uh, you could call it between progressive and educated and just a lot of opportunities happening in Baghdad. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandparents' generation left to Baghdad and that's where my parents were both born. They lived on uh, Shara, Philistine, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, I think in Mansur, in that general area. And uh, my parents actually knew each other when they were kids, you know, they didn't really see each other again. Mm-hmm. Um, until college and I think um, like they were at like a wedding and my dad saw my mom and um, you know he was smitten and in the 70s so he had like a big afro and a mustache and my mom was wearing you know something she had like picked up and like you know on a trip to Greece you know these were incredibly progressive and educated times yes. when you were like you know middle class and you know we've all seen the British pate films and we're just like wow was that really Iraq but when I grew up those are the stories I grew up with. It was um, taking full advantage and that's really where I think the Mandan community shined and it just totally belied our numbers because we outsized um, uh, our influence everything from artists to engineers you know uh, people who were advisors to very powerful people um, and just you know all in all good reliable community leaders that people genuinely could depend on. It was a place where people couldn't even depend on their own brothers, but they would like give their kids to a Mandiant family and say, please protect us. Mm. Like This, you know, real things that happen. We built up that reputation and my parents both have that very strong core family value and a value on education. So, um, you know, my grandmother was married off when she was gosh, I don't know, 15, 16, because it Same was so important.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah it, you know, and it, it was a global thing. And, um, for some, the reasons differ, um, but for her, it was a particularly, um, you know, traumatic event because her whole family was basically, um, you know, being persecuted in Iran. She came mm-hmm. from Ahvaz, so they. This is where you know, I, I people always say, "Do you guys do arranged marriage?" And I say, "We really don't." But under certain pressing circumstances, if you know the family and you know that she is never going to have a life in a certain mm-hmm. place then you know that she can at least live a better life somewhere else. Absolutely. It's a protective measure. Yeah. It is. is. And um, luckily, you know, having that close relationship, um, you know, with my grandfather and family, they knew them, they trusted their daughter with them. And um, the main goal for her was to have educated children and empowered Mm -hmm. children. And my grandmother is literally the smartest person I know and she doesn't have a formal education and we all say the same thing. If they had just gotten a formal education, they would rock the world.
0: Oh or the maybe, biggest difference that make, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. It's and it's something, you know, she would always say, you yeah. know, you know, we don't we do not yeah. do that. They don't just, you know, go and get married off. We don't do that at all. Education
0: is huge. I mean, whenever someone asks me to introduce myself, I always start with my degree and my certificate just because I think for us, and Mandelians, education is so important to us. We don't take it for granted. Um, right. and just going, going back to that topic that you were um, talking about with the 70s and the 70s fashion, it just brought to mind my grandpa was super open-minded and progressive. And there was this one story that I remember my mom telling me, my auntie Layla, she wore jeans for the first time, the ones that flare at the bottom. Um, yeah, no and, and at the time, obviously not everyone is progressive in the community and in, in the Iraqi, broader Iraqi community. So Layla's wearing her flared jeans and she's walking, you know, on the streets of, <laughs> of Iraq and, um, everyone's, you know, saying things like, how could you wear something that resembles a man? But because my grandpa was, you know, the youngest of seven women in his own family and his own mm-hmm. father was a head of a tribe. So, you know, raised amongst really strong personalities and he's mm-hmm. like, Layla walk. I want to see, I want to see what they're going to say. Should <laughs> you know, just keep walking,
1: conduct yourself with the utmost dignity and do not, Absolutely. Do not- yeah, do not empower them or just you know give them any kind of power over you. And that, that was the kind of grace that I believe the women who raised us really espouse. And uh, coming from a public health perspective, um, women are the core of the world. And mm. they are the center of families. They are the center of uh, neighborhoods, communities, and the entire human race. And without that matriarchal and maternal value that is passed down through men as well, where men mm. realize. What is truly valuable in the world? We ramp back from that very individualistic, um, you know, exploitative kind of mentality. And mm-hmm. I honestly think that's how Mandaeans survived: is because we didn't overextend ourselves into being too selfish Absolutely. or to you know, sacrificing our higher values for either wealth or power. And I think it really turns back to what is good for the women and the children.
0: Mm-hmm. How
1: can I keep them educated? Was protected, not being too overly exposed to society and all of its ills that only genuinely wish us ill Mm -hmm. if we fall into a place of weakness. And, you know, I think our parents were very lucky to grow up in that age. Now, my parents both graduated from um, Baghdad University School of Veterinary Medicine. Uh, There's about six years uh, age difference between my mom and dad. So my dad Mm -hmm. was just coming out. My mom just got in. And uh, my mom was really mad that she couldn't get into pharmacy school, but, um her her father, umida, my he, Jindunaji. he I was very lucky to grow up with all my grandparents and he was the first one to pass away five years ago. Mm, he like very, him. Yeah, he's a wonderful, wonderful man. He's a very large jeweler in Baghdad and so it was gonna take a lot for my dad, who came from a very humble background, you know, working mm-hmm. class, but Um, a very, very sharp guy, Um, you know, definitely knew his way around uh, a craft and he loves working with his hands. So he would always engage with my grandfather. And my grandfather one day called him in and he said, listen, you know, Sada, my mom, you know, she's really upset that she didn't get into pharmacy school. I need Mm -hmm. you to help her, you know, convince her that veterinary medicine is still okay. It's cool. And if she wants to switch, she can. And as soon as she got in, she realized she loved it. And my parents, they, they have the gift with animals. I mean, they genuinely have a God-given gift with animals. And it's, it's pretty awesome to see them in action. And uh, that's what got them out of Iraq. So they got married. Um, they had me a year later. That was around 1990, 89, when, uh, when they got married. And the war in Iraq, the um, you know, first Gulf War started uh, on January, end of January of 1991. And mm-hmm. I was born February 10th and I was born literally smack in the middle of it. Um, I was born premature um, and my mom was in labor so they got in a motorcade and left Baghdad to Diyala. and mm. uh, I was born in a hospital that had no heat or electricity. Oh, wow. um, there was no functioning incubator for me to stay warm. So my um, dad and my uncles ran outside, got some sticks and candles and burned them um, while uh, you know, it was basically just this freezing room with one doctor and one nurse in the whole hospital and a bunch of other women, wow. um, you know, in labor. But luckily, uh, on that warmth and the warmth of uh, my baby's bosom, I uh, survived and I lived. She's, yeah, you know, BB just... Baby just,
0: Danny. <laughs> yeah,
1: baby Danny just coming into the world literally with a bang. And that was just the funnest thing, I have to say. But tra- <laughs> completely traumatizing for my mom. She was so traumatized, um, yeah. actually, when you breast milk like you know she was just her, her totally, body yeah, yeah.
0: yeah totally Can't imagine.
1: but luckily my parents actually um, got a really great reputation in the years fall like Um, Leading up to the war as Mm -hmm. the near veterinarians for diplomats because none of the veterinary hospitals were open. So they would make house calls to all Mm -hmm. these different diplomats, you know, the Chihuahua for the ambassador of uh, Japan's like wife, Um, you know, a parrot that belonged to a diplomat from the USA. Uh, you know, wild dogs, like African hunting dogs, the ones that you see out in like safaris. Um, They literally had them, you know, at the Portuguese ambassador's house. Crazy, crazy stories. And because they were able to treat these animals, these ambassadors and diplomats helped my parents escape. So Mm -hmm. we helped them escape and they took what belongings they could. My dad took a bunch of medical tools and all of his medical books because those were his prized possessions. Of course, lots of family memories left behind. But uh, we ended up escaping to Madrid, Spain. And I spent the first 10 months of my life in Madrid, Spain, which was, yeah, that was uh, pretty interesting. That's why I think I can speak Spanish a little better than, uh, because we were the only ones to come to the United States. Mm. My um, dad's side left to the UK, my mom's side left to the Netherlands. And then, of course, the whole extended family is everywhere Sweden, Germany, you know, Mm, Australia just you know and growing up with that people say oh it it must be really cool and honestly silver linings yeah it's pretty amazing to have family in every corner of the world and that's how i feel about the Mandane community that i literally have a giant family all over the world definitely do
0: yeah
1: if if anything should happen you know i don't care who didn't show up to whose wedding or whatever (laughs) you know it's just i show up to get
0: invited
1: Exactly. No, it's it's like listen. If I need a place to stay, I have family, and I don't care if you come from the complete total opposite of Mandan community. We're family, and it, it is pretty awesome because it gave me some great excuses to travel, and I still haven't seen a fraction of them. Which is, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's the uh, the the reality of uh, how we lived. So, do you um, have a
0: huge uh, Mandan community where you live, or uh,
1: no? Actually, my dad created it from scratch. <laughs> Can get to that. Um, came to the United States, um, you know, after they accepted us uh, for asylum, you know, my parents went into the biotech and pharma industries, and I had a beautiful childhood. I, you know, my parents were very hardworking. Um, the kitchen always had like margot timen <laughs>
0: Beautiful.
1: If, if my mom had like fried fish or something, she would make sure she got like the extra sweet bukhur incense, the fishy, you know, smell, you know, and those like the, those are the smells of my childhood, as well as like opening up the closet and just looking at my mom's very prized possessions, you know, some very thick wool textiles that were very heavily dyed um, with these braids and knots in them, um, you know,
0: that's beautiful, sort of
1: baskets and things, silver worked pieces that were Mm -hmm. made by my great grandfather, my grandfather. And then, of course, iraqi music you know and when 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 i was raised you know my my upbringing is very unique in that my upbringing is very old school the music is old school the manners and it was just filled with love my upbringing it was a lot of stories and it was very heavily focused on how my parents were raised by their parents so it was Mm -hmm. like before the generation that really saw a lot of war and i consider myself fortunate so when i talked to other iraqis they're like you know you are you're, you're literally like a time capsule. You know, your tastes and everything else are like my grandpa. Like, you know, I'm just I'm just in, in the
0: best way possible, I think. <laughs> <best> way. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Thank you. So it's it's really funny because like, you know, um is like too new school for me. Like way too new school. Oh, no way. school like way too new school. Like for me it's all like Dakhil Hassan and then like all the way up to maybe you know, if I really want to listen to, um, you know, Hamid Mansour or stuff like that, but I love like Sadie Bayati. You know, I listen to the classics. I literally have
0: no idea who you're talking about. <laughs>
1: exactly, and if you, if I told oh the parents, no, be, I feel oh, terrible.
0: Oh. Like, am I not cultured enough?
1: That's the thing, and and it, you know, I I was you know just this sort of cultural time capsule compared to a lot of Iraqis who you know they you guys were born there and then you were raised there, but it was a different time. It was like mm. you know, 90s, 2000s when things were shifting very very quickly. And with me, it was uh, basically getting a a reboot of like all the greatest hits of 20th century Iraq and (laughs) fire, which is fantastic. So, you know, I I, I absolutely love my upbringing. Um, My parents, you know, I was an only child. So all the pressure and expectations and just every ounce of love they could, you know, and of course, guilt and, you know, you should do this, you should do that, oh, and you have yeah, to, of do course. It. you know, yeah. there's all the expectations, but it was, uh, it built a lot of character and um, they always taught me to just keep pushing. So that was, that was fantastic. Um,
0: I'm such a basic bitch. Like I grew up listening to like Nancy Ajram and Ruby and that was it. <laughs> to,
1: to your point, really, um, just being part of that lumped in group and the fact that we are so obtuse and we don't fall into anybody's real idea you know because we are at that crossroads mm-hmm. of you know ancient ethnic religion indigenous group you know pre-abrahamic like how do you even explain it to people and you meet these rare souls once in a blue who are like oh yeah i know who the Mandans are mm-hmm. and you know you have to be a wandering traveler of history to have known who we are and i actually had the Privilege of, of meeting somebody who did um, at one point because um, after I you know graduated from uni in um, 2013 my father and I started a medical device company uh, called Breeji Scientific it's named after us and it's actually partly inspired by my mm-hmm. birth um, where we have created the world's first single use infant incubator so incredible. we incredible. We've created a baby incubator for 1% of the cost and weight so we can democratize access to neonatal care all over the world. Wow. And uh, with the onset of COVID, we um, reworked very quickly the design so that it could be a containment unit for COVID-19. Mm. But you know, when I was getting my college degree, I really wanted to study what is it that makes Bindane so special from a cultural and even just like our health. Because my focus in public health was because I didn't like where i started um i shot for the moon at boston university as a biomedical engineer in a pre-med track which is like the hardest subjects you could take and one of the hardest schools in the country by far and away
0: oh and
1: i just I, I first off you know math chemistry i just couldn't do it it was just so 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 hard and so much pressure only to end up with basically a very male-dominated uh, industry and mentality, where they were either overcomplicating things or they re- weren't really focusing on people and culture and um, things that could actually change the world. And with them, it was really you know taking the, the old-school, traditional route and ending up working for like a you know big corporation. But for me, I made a switch into health science, and in health science, um, I found that. Not only is it, you know, replete with um, women who really care about everything from disabilities to access to health care, but there was a very strong focus on culture and what are the social determinants of health, the environment you are raised in, um, yeah. how you were raised, your education. And that to me was the most important thing because that was exactly how Mandaeans and indigenous cultures survived since the beginning of history itself. It was about what we taught and this tribal wisdom that was passed down so that we could really survive against all odds, whether it was pandemics or, you know, just, um, you know, basic things like, you know, feminine hygiene Mm. or uh, infant hygiene, you know, things that people are still dying from today because they don't have sanitary products or access to clean water. Um, Mm. And I think that learning about these and then asking my professors, hey, you know, we have like a really special diet that our priests eat. You know, can I compare this to the Mediterranean diet? And they're like, Yeah, you can make a comparative analysis of it. And I just went through it categorically. And everything we eat, the fact that we don't, you know, drink alcohol, we're not supposed to at least, um, you know, going through it. I mean, if you stuck to a Mandean diet, it's like a super Mediterranean diet. It's it's a really really healthy diet, and the lifestyle is very healthy. So in general, I think like our grandparents, they lived very healthy lives because they were active, mm. and they had. Also on the psychological social part, this boundless optimism, Mm -hmm. despite the worst happening to you, you had a support network and a community around you that could help you through the worst of times. And I think one of the worst things that has befallen humanity in recent years is actually a lack of community. Families are being ripped apart. People are becoming very individualistic and neighborhoods are coming under enormous pressure just to make ends meet. And this is affecting people's health Mm -hmm. in ways that, you know, we understand, but it's hard to translate that into dollars and policies so that you can actually have any political action. So this is something that we're all very passionate about in public health. And we know that we are up against, clearly, uh, an entrenched system in the United States, as we've seen from the pandemic, Mm -hmm. that is completely inept. It does not care about women, children, Families um, or you know their their status in life, mm-hmm. and you know having so many people who genuinely care about it was really important to me now, having said that, um, in two thousand and twelve I took an archaeology course randomly uh, right. while I was just trying to like diversify what I was doing. Um, it was my junior year, and it was just an elective, and I thought, yeah, why not I like archaeology So the first day I sat down and the Professor at the podium, Michael Dante, he said, hello, my name is Professor Michael Dante. I specialize in Middle Eastern minorities and ancient cultures from Iraq, Syria, and Iran. And I spent 15 years digging. Mm-hmm. In that region, and I was like, dude, no way. Oh,
0: oh my
1: god, <laughs> no way! And I was like, okay, so this is my guy. I looked at Mike, and as soon as he finished his first uh, lecture, I immediately went up to him and I'm like, my name's Danny Brigi. I was born in Baghdad, and I'm a And He goes, You're a Mandan, <laughs> and I go, Yeah, he goes, And you have a Boston accent, and I'm like, Yep, <laughs> that's me. And he's like, should you be in the south of Iraq getting baptized or baptizing somebody? And I'm like, dude, how you know who we are? And he's like, you guys are so old. It's literally like just you and maybe the Zoroastrians. Uh, We have no idea how old either of you guys are. Every time we think we know, it gets shot back another 100 or 500 Mm -hmm. years. Every time we think we have a ballpark estimate, you guys are just that old. He's like, have you been back to Iraq? And I go, (laughs) no. And that was... (laughs) That was the seminal question of my upbringing, especially after nine eleven. You know, do you have family there? No, most of them have left. Would have you, you go back?
0: American? Yeah. Have you and thought about you going back? back? Yeah.
1: And I thought, no, I can't, you know, um, for obvious reasons and for discrete reasons in that I'm a minority and I'd be a target and I'm an yeah. American on top of that. On top you know, of I that, can't, yeah. I can't feign uh, being a Canadian. I'm not nearly nice enough to do that. So I can't, uh, Really fake my way into just going to Baghdad and coming out um, safely. So I said, you know, this is going to be a very hard sell to my parents. You know, I can't go back. You know, to, especially to, to Baghdad. He goes, we're not going to Baghdad. Mm-hmm. We're going to Kurdistan. We're going up to the Shimon And I'm like, oh, that is a horse of a different feather. Because my grandfather, who's like in his mid 80s at the time, like a decade ago or more, he would go to Kurdistan for fun. Like he would literally go to Damascus and take a bus. <laughs> into Iraq and just like chill have some liben, you know hang out and then just like come back
0: Oh, amazing!
1: And, yeah and you know just avid traveler my you know my, my grandfather or, you know very humble guy come from very modest background but he spent all his money on traveling um my dad was you know totally for it and I when I got home I'm like hey I bet this professor and he wants to take me to Iraq my mom was like <laughs> absolutely not are you kidding me and she's like, <laughs> she's, like, like, I'm not gonna, she's like, I'm not letting you go sounds back.
0: Like, sounds like my mom.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, it's just uh, you're absolutely insane. And I go, listen, we're going to Kurdistan. Now, what are your family's memories of Kurdistan? Did you ever go when you were a kid?
0: No, but I, I used to always hear stories. You know, Shamal, the north is so, so beautiful. To go back, we would go, you know, to the north, to Kurdistan.
1: Epic, I I suppose, doesn't even get to describe it because this is one of the original cradles of civilization, Mm. which is up in those mountains. This is where barley was first sowed when we went from, you know, wandering hunter-gatherers to agrarian Mm -hmm. sedentary cultures. This is where wolves were domesticated into dogs so that they could protect the goats that had been domesticated into sheep. You know, Mm -hmm. this is the Mm -hmm. first place where all this stuff happened. And there's actually a cave up there called Shanandar Cave that... um, is the oldest um, neanderthal site in the world and they actually found that these neanderthals had been buried in very ornate orderly graves and they had flowers on them meaning that neanderthals actually had spirituality and a religion and mm-hmm. that this was you know was some some form of spirituality i should say you know customs and rituals which is phenomenal so um Needless to say, I did convince my mom. My dad was like, go for it. So we went in 2013, I graduated. And at the same time, I actually had a year to prepare for it. So that was 2012. And he was like, we're going next year, we're gearing up for it. So I took an Arabic class because I didn't know how to speak Arabic. When my grandparents came uh, right after 9-11, I didn't know a lot of Arabic. I was that kid, awkwardly, like, you when know, we visit family and friends. They're like, hi, Danny, Shlonek," and I'll be like, Zan, you know? And, like, that's it. That's all my Iraqi. That's all I knew how to say. Mm. And... Um, it all kind of skyrocketed after that. My parent, my grandparents taught me a ton of Iraqi Arabic and that's kind of where I get all my lingo from. And I taught them English so that they could get their citizenships. And when I took the Arabic class, my teacher was from uh, Haifa from uh, you know, Palestine. She's, I think she's originally Lebanese. And she would use me as like a comparator for the dialects. So she was like, okay, say Dijaj, which is chicken. And the, everybody will say Dijaj, which is the Levantine pronunciation. It's Very light, it's very airy. They were like, you know, colonized by the French. So they think they're French. It's really cute. And then you have the Gulf, you have the Iraqis. And then she'll turn to me and go, Danny, say Dijaj. And I'll go, Dijaj. And it would just be this really heavy guttural. <laughs> it so, gives us so, flavor
0: so and spice.
1: Yeah, it's, and it's the heaviest. And anybody who says, oh, you know, it's the Egyptian or the, the Levantine accent's the best. It's like, listen, everything was created in Iraq from <laughs> Arabic all the way down to like, you know, the agrarian culture. So we the best, you know, and um, that's, <laughs> that's, that, that's that needless pride coming in, you know, just that completely shameless pride of being an Iraqi. You know, we, we are just such a boisterous crowd about being Iraqi. And yet it's it's such a melting pot. And I learned that firsthand When I finally went with Mike, um, we went in 2013. I was his translator, did a little bit of digging. And it's just breathtakingly beautiful place up in the corner of Iraq called Rawanduz. Mm. Um, There's a gorge. It's uh, basically like, I would say like a quarter the size of the Grand Canyon. And it's just this cut in the earth and it's all green. And it's just mountains everywhere. We're maybe like 50 miles from the Iranian border. And that's where we were looking for stuff. And, um, you know, everything my parents told me about. Beautiful lots of you know wonderful people and fruit and stuff like that. And we were actually looking for an ancient, lost Assyrian city called uh, Musasr or Majesar. Wow. And uh, we kind of like established a rapport the first year. And that first year I told everybody that there was this group calling themselves ISIS that had been mm. around for a long time and that were gathering their strength in Syria, but they were making inroads basically f- from behind the scenes in Mosul. And I was like, they're threatening to invade Mosul. They're mm-hmm. probably gonna do this within the next year. And everybody on the date was like, no nah, it can never happen. What are you talking about? <laughs> Get your head out of the clouds. And I'm like, no nah, I'm, I'm pretty sure I know what I'm talking about. This What's is this is yeah, a serious yeah. issue. So we got back that first year and I adopted my dog. And because my parents, veterinarians, never really had a pet, so I begged them and I just wanted a pet. And uh I've always wanted one of two dogs, either a husky or mm. a pharaoh hound because my dad had this dog book that a german diplomat i think gave to my dad at one point as a present and every time i flip through all the dog breeds i'm like oh i gotta have a husky or a fair <laughs> hound they're just like wild looking they're these beautiful majestic wild beasts you know they're not like a pug you know just like these, these little doofy dogs no, they're compatible
0: like- for your personality yeah actually.
1: exactly you know very purpose-built sporting you know wild and uh, ideally i wanted a fair hound but <laughs> being up in the North, in the Northeast here, it's, it's way too cold. And everybody has Huskies around here, you know? So I figure, well, it's probably going to be a Husky. And sure enough, I came back from that dig in 2013. um, And I went to the, the, you know, shelter and I found my little baby. She was just sitting there and I actually walked right by her until my dad was like, Hey, come check this one out. And I look at her. I'm like, is that what I think it is? And he goes, yeah. I mean, it was literally like finding a Pikachu, you know, it was like a one in a million, you know, or, or like a Mew, you know, it was like one of the rarest little Pokemon of a dog. And it just, she fell right in my lap. That's and like, so yeah. she's, she's an Egyptian pharaoh hound. She's a girl. And I had to give her an Egyptian name. And I'm like, well, Nefertiti and Cleopatra are like way too long. So why not just Isis, you know? <laughs> and I named her Isis. That's and sure. like, I knew that there was going to like, that this group was going to like literally blow up on, on you know, the international you know, news media at any point, and mm. within a month, they were all over the news. This group
0: foreshadowing so, for sure.
1: Foreshadowing, yeah. And I was like, well, I have a fun sense of humor, so if it does end up turning into what I think it is, then you know, <laughs> this is going to be a funny story to tell the kids one day. <laughs> so she is um love of my life she's she's just the the cutest little thing the only thing is she used to get off her leash and run around um, my neighborhood so I'd be the Iraqi kid running through my neighbor's yard yelling I <laughs> and I'm thinking, it was, what
0: the hell is this guy saying
1: oh my god it was it was hysterical like a uh, uh, Police officer once caught her and just brought her to my house. He goes, "Her name really ISIS." I go, "Yeah." He goes, "That's <laughs> hilarious." I'm like, "You know what? No, it's even more like hilarious than that." And he goes, "What?" I goes, "I was born in Baghdad." And he goes, "Get out of here." <laughs> nice. oh, my God. Yeah, fun, fun, fun. Um, but honestly, it was it turned into a very dark period in my life after that because um, I went back to Iraq in 2014. We had all of these professors of archaeology and history from Baghdad and Mosul University that we were teaching and uh, when the workshop ended in Erbil we sent them back to Mosul and the, literally the day after we sent them back it's Mosul and everything you know basically goes into chaos and all these friends that I had made were now stuck under this murderous regime and um, I had a choice and um, you a know, decision that I could help a lot of them either escape mm. or um, you know, at least get through just with moral support, and it was an incredibly depressing two years of my life and um, if it were not for my dog, my family, um, a lot of self care and focusing on mental health, I mean clearly we're not we 're not very far mm. um, in our life experiences. At any given point from trauma, um, you know, being Mandaeans, especially. So, going through things, whether it was 9 11 or this pandemic, you know, earth shattering events, it really comes down to what is affecting you personally. And I learned to cultivate my own small center of peace mm. that I can always rely upon. And it was a brutal time because I was going through my master's in public health. I really wanted to excel, but. Um, luckily, my professors and the faculty, they saw how much, um, you know, it was affecting me. And they said, you know what, we should definitely, you know, help you out. I almost flunked out. But they're like, no, you know, we, we totally understand you've got a lot going on. So luckily, I was, you know, with the right people.
0: Hmm. I'm glad and, you had that, you know, strong support systems.
1: Yeah. It, it, it helps. And, you know, um, I did everything I possibly could, whether it was um, yoga, exercise. I enrolled myself in like a yoga study, you know, just anything that could just get me over the hump and having a support network again, you know, just the basis of of public health and social determinants of health. It's, mm-hmm. it's a part of human culture to have a support network. And I um, got through it. I graduated. I had a fantastic time. Um, soon after that, I went with my um, my father to uh, actually, you know, start working on our project a little more. And you know, we start getting these awards and start developing it. And out of nowhere, I got invited to go to South Korea. So I lived in South Korea for six months. Ended up becoming the the first uh, startup to win um a f- first foreign startup to get a grant from the government of south korea Amazing. so
0: what year was that it? was in uh,
1: 2018 so i was there from mm-hmm. august till like december a few years kind of back and forth trying to develop the product and then we just got invited there because they found us on another accelerator here in boston and i had like two weeks to decide and i got there thinking it was just going to be you know meeting with companies and Maybe getting some stuff, you know partnerships or whatever, and I ended up on like a South Korean shark tank t v show
0: oh my
1: God for gosh. like two months, and it was like a four different rounds with different panels of judges every time. they make you do all this goofy yeah. stuff, and I ended up getting to the final round after like three hundred contestants got narrowed down to like top ten okay. and yeah in South like Korea,
0: a- that's like the center of entertainment yeah,
1: entertainment oh my god they industry. they create. Tried- they turned me into a to a rolling show. It was it was absolutely ridiculous. So I thought
0: you, know, you were gonna say K-pop fanatic. I was like, what?
1: <laughs> they tried that. They put me in a polka dot suit and put me on a stage with lights and like you know it was it was the I real would die deal. to say that yeah oh yeah i have the videos they're locked in a safe nobody's ever seeing those until no. you
0: know. okay you can't just nap- say that now i have to see them like you better no, you dm you can, me
1: you can, see the, you can see the snapshots actually on my instagram they're, they're there okay
0: okay time to do some stalking after we finish this <laughs> episode yeah
1: so yeah that's you know that's kind of like the the gist you know that's the arc of uh danny and now i am about to turn 30 years old. I'm in the middle of this pandemic here in the United States. You know, very far removed from the lovely, uh, you know, places like Australia that have been lucky enough to kind of skirt by and not be affected by it. But we are, as we speak, waiting for FDA emergency use authorization for our product to help protect frontline workers and patients in hospitals with a very, very new kind of device. It's very exciting. It's basically like putting a dome-shaped tent on a patient's head so that they can kind of relax in this airy environment Mm. while the virus doesn't spread anywhere. It's just really cool. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, we've been, it's been brutal. We've been waiting forever. So yeah, it's uh, been a long, it's been a long road and there's been a lot of people supporting us. And I have to say um, you really inspired me to reach out. To Mandaeans and fellow like-minded people and people I never would have even thought of talking to, because we need that now more than ever. I saw Mm -hmm. an opportunity to do the same thing you were doing. When I read Who Speaks and when I read Gnostic Thoughts, I was like, you know, this is me. This is Mm -hmm. this is exactly what would be running through my head if I want to put it on paper. And I haven't had that artistic, you know, just time to wind down and just journal the Culture itself is that there's this very loving nature of pouring your heart and soul into mm. everything that you do and you do it from Gullbeck like, you know you really do it from the bottom of your
0: Absolutely.
1: heart yeah and um I think is of
0: those universal mediums that we do that through
1: genuinely that's um something that we uphold as being sort of this in, in a way, like a moral compass, just so when things get really bad, it's, again, this optimism, you know, where mm-hmm. we just say, you know, and just keep walking just keep going just buckle down and you know just put your faith in the universe and just keep moving and that it was just always so incredible to me even in the worst of times they can you know my grandmothers my father everybody just keeping their cool and saying don't worry we've been through worse than this you guys think you have it so rough you know getting spread all over the world well now you guys are some of the most educated prosperous all these amazing opportunities. You look left and right at young Mandaians. We are doing incredible things. And we're just coming out of the dark side of the tunnel and just starting to heal. We now are in the phase of growing triumph out of trauma. That is exactly what we're doing. And now that we are coalescing, our roots are strong. We feel a part of our own societies that we have ownership over our own identities. We've navigated those personal journeys and we continue to navigate them with each other. And I think we're living in a world now, clearly, you know, we're not going to be the only ones meeting each other online, you know, maybe meeting the love of our life online. You know, it's (laughs) like, that's kind of what everybody's doing these days. And more importantly, exchanging ideas, supporting Mm -hmm. one another and just being there yeah it's it's absolutely immense and i think the world is worse off without cultures ancient cultures indigenous mm. cultures that have that span of history um and just what i what i would call an ancestral knowledge that the world does go in cycles and that you have to be able to prepare yourself for whatever may come because right now we're actually living in some of the most peaceful times ever. As chaotic as things are, mm. it could get a lot worse. Like, it may me seem could,
0: chaotic on the internet, but you're right. It, it, it could is, get but, worse.
1: And, you know, that really came into very sharp relief after I came back from Iraq. I was kissing the ground when I got back mm. to the United States. Like, oh, my God, the privilege. And I am essentially, as as you can see, I might as well just be a white male. Mm. You know, everybody thinks I'm either Latino or Greek or something like that you know the more south i go in the united states the more latino i become because everybody thinks i'm latino but the more (laughs) north i am i basically i look like every other armenian or greek or or portuguese kid um and the only time i ever really felt like singled out was when i you know go to europe because in europe man they, they they got a whole nother level of like different like subtle racism over there oh, where sure. you yeah. know it's just much, much different. After
0: you've been on the front lines, sorry to cut you short, on the front lines in Iraq, and then you come back to the West and you see Western education, and it's like our struggles and our genocides are purely theoretical to them. And it's this issue of Eurocentrism that I wanted to discuss with you. But yes. also I yes. keep seeing this this tension between women's rights human rights and cultural identities and i feel like there shouldn't be any tension but there is give a little context before we dive into this discussion we're in a particular situation around december last year i think we were arguing this guy on the internet he seemed like a fundamentalist but he was parading around as if he's a progressive activist under a pretense that you know he's saving the religion or whatever but in one of his arguments or replies he mentioned that you know, we're submitting to Western ideas, we're encouraging ethno-religious colonization and genocide. And he just kept going on and on about this idea that, you know, we're surrendering to cultural genocide, to Western neo-colonial ideas, merely because we're criticizing certain structures and practices within the community. I won't, obviously won't mention his name because he runs a podcast as well. And I don't want to give clout to people (laughs) like Of course, yeah, no. Um, How do we frame, you know, human rights in a way, in a culturally sensitive way so that Mm. it can not only acknowledge but ease that conflict between universal human rights and cultural identities? Like, first of all, I think he has a completely wrong understanding of what decolonization means. I think, in fact, some Mm. of the things in the Arab world that violate women's rights speak to patriarchal structure. Um, And I want you to talk more about, how fundamentally mundaneism is rooted in matriarchal concepts. And I think yes. this idea in the West that like feminism and women's rights is a Western concept and that feminist mm-hmm. waves are only needed in the Western world is just completely wrong. It's reductionist. It the work of so many Arab feminists, so many mundane women.
1: Absolutely. No, I, I couldn't have said it better. And I think the first place you start at is acknowledging where And what shaped these people who feel so threatened? Mm. Because when you understand that people in the Mandan community and in communities around the world have been under threat of violence, many of them came from very humble backgrounds where they were surrounded by people who wanted them dead. Their safe place, their space that they cultivated was their own faith and identity. Mm. And now coming out of one trauma, just to see it being attacked from the inside, Mm. maybe they don't see it as just questioning. They genuinely see it as a muddying of the waters, as twisting facts Mm. that we shouldn't even be addressing these issues, and that we shouldn't even be talking to Mm. young girls like you, who have all of these very idealistic you know, theories that are just trying to meld into an old culture. And you know, we were gonna to touch you know, on the idea of relativism, but I think we understand fully that you have to take each and every culture and how they overlap individually and then see where the seeds actually start to break apart. And with them, I genuinely believe that these are people who have love in their hearts, I believe he does. He has love for people and the community. It is just that when you trip that wire, they become people who will antagonize and fight and demean Mm. and do things that you or I would not in normal conversation. And I truly believe that there is something, there's a component missing there where it's this absolutist form of argument that if he does not act and if he does not cut it right at the tip, and this is, you know, from, from personal experience, you know, within my family and, and, you know, with the community, because just to, just to give you context here, when I said my dad created a mundane community, my dad took about six, seven years off of his biomedical work Mm -hmm. to go to the UN and go to, the U.S. government, while Mandaeans were getting persecuted between 2007, 2010, and he brought 3,000 of them through the U.N. to Massachusetts. And he saved all of them by bringing them here. And there were people who he was working against actively who were trying to attack the religion, basically lump us in as Christians. In, in, in the Mandaeans' most vulnerable time, we had people within our own community -hmm. Attacking it, so there is precedent for feeling very, very suspicious of anybody who wants to have some funny ideas. But these ideas were rooted in power and Mm -hmm. money, and keeping Mandaeans in Iraq so that they could have political representation in the parliament. And there's like millions of dollars on the table. And there's, you know, there's, there's definitely some corruption. There's absolutely there's a lack of leadership and corruption. And I think if there was better leadership, we would have the reasoned approach and that we as young people would actually know how to deal with these conversations in a better way because Mm. the trauma that they feel, the threat that these people feel is literally from many, many generations of people just demeaning them. And you can go one of two ways. You can literally say, you know what, I am a worthless person. Mandaeans are yuck and I don't want anything to do with them or their culture Mm. or their practices. And you know, I kind of hate myself for it. And this is exactly what African Americans and everybody else went through. It's it's it. They demean you until you have no self worth or value anymore. Mm-hmm. And sadly, you know, people who um, uh, don't have that kind of fortitude, you know, their their personalities are such that they have more of a tendency to be more on the superficial side, and they just don't have the character mm-hmm. to just build up against it. And really you can't blame them. Some people just don't have the support network around them. They're attacked until they feel like, you know what? I have to give up my identity because I can't take this anymore. You have to be compassionate. You have to stand for a place of compassion Mm. when dealing with these people because they, they are just like us. We could have just as easily been like them. When I see you, I see me. When I see him, I also see me. I see somebody who has been in that position where I don't want to feel like, we are being colonized by ideas that, let's face it, the West and, and, you know, for all of their academic institutions, their families, I mean, just from a public health perspective, being an Indigenous person from an ethnic culture, having any culture, is in and of itself a protective health effect Absolutely. by knowing how to live and how to act and you know if you were raised in a family that valued it how to develop healthy relationships and actually question your own beliefs that was the most important thing I think you know true mandaism if there was ever such a thing it was to do the most compassionate thing and focus on questioning your own beliefs mm-hmm. and making sure that you were operating from a place of compassion and that you were always going to analyze the second and third order consequences, just like they didn't analyze the second and third order consequences of invading Iraq mm-hmm. that ended up affecting us and scattering us all around the world. Nobody cared about Mandans. I asked the head general of the Afghan forces uh, when he was giving a speech at BU. And I was like, hello, sir. I was born in Baghdad and during 91, you know, uh, do you guys have any, do you have any plan when you invaded Iraq for the Mandaeans? He goes, and his face turned pale white and oh he's God. just like, no, no. He goes, I'm sorry. He goes, we there's just, no, we didn't.
0: There's no justification at all. Like,
1: no, okay. no. And, and, and this is, this is why, you know, and I wasn't, and he knew I wasn't attacking him. I was mm-hmm. speaking truth because I wanted the truth. Yeah. And, yeah. He, I actually had a friend who t- took that Arabic class with me. He was an ex-Special um, Forces guy, actually. He was in those, like 40s taking this class with me, and he actually went and talked to uh, this general afterwards, and he came up to me. He was like, man, they were talking about you afterwards because you know, nobody, nobody has the guts mm. to just you know, ask that bold face in front of a whole room full of people you know, as somebody who's come out of a war, and you are basically on the receiving end, and your whole community was affected by it. So when you deal with people... And when you want to understand them, understand that you don't know all of their trauma, where they're coming from, and mm-hmm. that the the colonizer mentality, and that we shouldn't be colonized. I do not believe that you know the Mandan culture is so rooted in anything uh, that is like so far fetched or out of the norm of what humanity has generally done, mm. compared to these massive exploitative. Economic systems, and the one I grew up learning about in Catholic school for 12 years was the patriarch himself, Abraham, with a capital P. That Mm -hmm. was the patriarch, that was the guy who started it all. Who basically said, We are going to create religions, you know, or a religion because God has chosen us as a chosen people, and we are going to fight and die for a piece of land. Mm -hmm. Who gets affected by that? Women and children. You are willingly going to sacrifice. For an infinite number of generations, women and children for a piece of land, this was fundamentally against everything Mandaians believed in. Mm. So although we might have seeds of patriarchy within our culture, like so many others, there are, there are you know pieces of tradition that all of us could argue about until the cows come home. But when it comes to this inevitability of humanity, and this is kind of like a Mandaian prophecy that It is inevitable that the world is probably not going to end in a very nice kind of way, but it doesn't matter because the world has always kind of been in trouble and the world needs good people like us who aren't really going to get involved with these huge economic and power struggles and pieces of land and God knows what else. All we want to do is protect the earth, Mm -hmm. protect women and children as families and as individual you know, nurtured beings that will grow up and be independent thinkers so that they can perpetuate better values in society and actually solve problems. That's literally why the Babylonians took us, at least from my understanding of Mandane history, from Jerusalem to Babylon so that we could literally build up a city because we were, by definition, thinkers, problem solvers, nation builders. Under several
0: empires, I mean, Babylonian, Syrian empire, Persian empire, Ottoman empire being the recent one.
1: And, and the more you dig around, the more you see that, you know what, we had we had a lot more influence than we give ourselves credit. We weren't just like this random group out in the marshlands of Iraq. At some point, no, we had some pretty big economic systems associated with us that we controlled. And, you know, we were like any other group. We had a middle class and we had people who didn't come from the same opportunities or the same kind of background as a lot of us. Mm. And all they have, and classic thing, they lean on religiosity. They lean on more patriarchal values because... Patriarchy in and of itself is a gut reaction to protect something by more force and just saying, I know better than you, as opposed to a maternal matriarchal system. And the perfect example of this, I'll give you two from public health. One is global health, where I did a consulting um, uh, project in Ethiopia where uh young girls were getting married off at a very, very young age in rural Ethiopia because they had to pay off to run the farm. So they had to marry the girls off. Mm-hmm. And when they said, why don't you keep them and the girls can get an education and she can help you run the farm, they go, Well, we can't afford it because you know the grain's too expensive. We have to marry her off now. So mm-hmm. we set up a microfinancing project that actually had certain criteria that had to be met the girl had to go to school had to finish school she would not be married off and the bank would actually give them the money instead of them marrying the girl off at a very young age and Mm -hmm. these sorts of things work that is a more maternalistic way of going about it because you're understanding the culture you're not speaking down to somebody and saying i know better than you the other side of that is vaccination so it's been paternalistic for a very long time just doctors looking down at people saying don't ask questions. It's good for you. That's it. Instead, a maternalistic approach is let's sit down. Tell me about your concerns about vaccines. What do you know? What do you want to know? How do you understand? And it is overwhelmingly more successful when you do that with people, and especially the people you, that really are on the edge who don't want to get a vaccination. It is can imagine, an yeah. understanding person. And it's this ability to be compassionate and put yourself in other people's shoes. Healthy so, open dialogue it's it's you know it's the bread and butter of any good intervention of public health and when you are going to deal with people throughout our community and you know the law of averages and the mandate community dictates that between me you and that guy you know I could survive in an elevator with you guys for an hour and I don't think we kill each other
0: no, you know I don't.
1: I- no, I, I I think actually at the end, you know, we would, we would recognize that we all come from a place of concern and love and that we want to move forward as a community with everybody's, you know, um, uh, best interests in mind. And that, you know what, should anybody come out and think that there's something that needs to be radically changed, then you know what, we need to have real representation throughout the community because it's right now- the
0: leadership at the core, you know, that's really it, important.
1: It is, it is the leadership. And you know what? A lot of us, to be quite honest, we're just living our own lives. Mm. People don't want to get caught up in the drama because- in the
0: politics.
1: They, and in the politics um, and, you know, all of the nitty gritty because everybody literally comes down and says, listen, I found the person I really, really love mm. and we're just going to deal with it between ourselves. We're living our lives. We literally just came out of a war and mm. we don't want to deal- with like everything else and people's opinions and how we're going to do it. People just live in their best lives. That's literally it. And they're upholding our highest virtues, Um, but getting engagement, you know, kind of a little higher. I think it's going to happen because now we're settled and we're just just approaching that. And it's pretty amazing because the world, technology, everything is at an inflection point. We're living at the
0: cusp of it. I mean, Gen Z and millennials. Yeah. And, (laughs) And
1: this is like the first time in, thousands of years that Mandans have gone through something like this. And the funny mm-hmm. thing is, Mandaeans, you know, young Mandans especially are now really starting to appreciate that we should start writing down all of our histories and family stories, that we should really start digging in and academically piecing together all of the Mandan, you know, histories and, mm-hmm. you, know, um, you know, really like who we are, where we came from. And it seems to be that Mandaeans do this. Uh, every time like some big, big event happens. We've only done this a handful of times in our history where something so earth shattering comes. We're like, okay, this might be it. So like, let's start writing stuff down because we don't know what's going to happen after this. So we're, we're just kind of like having fun. And I'm, I'm completely optimistic that we're going to be fine moving forward because if we were like very heavily kind of collected in the Middle East, this is just my opinion, um, you know, and the Middle East went through such terrible times, then you know what? It, it, we would be so much worse off if we were all concentrated in one place. Now you're going to have Mandane communities strewn all across the world. They're going to exist in little pockets until who cares what comes in the future? What, we're going to have like two Mandaeans who get to make it on the magic space shuttle to Mars in a hundred years. <laughs> who cares? Like I would rather there be like 10 Mandane's left on earth. We just take care of whatever like green stuff I is left. That. Yeah, and it's just you know just 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 being just being the stewards of the earth that we always wanted to be, and if going back how- to
0: our roots, connection yeah, to land on, and river, you know that that's, that's the it. literally the core fundamental tenets.
1: Yeah, and honestly, I think genuinely, the, the, if there was such a thing as you know the, the world being in peril, it's mm-hmm. when you get rid of every last indigenous culture that just cares about the earth. Mm-hmm. So you know we should. We should really be very, 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 very careful and acknowledge how precious it was mm. uh, to to grow up in such amazing households with such a culture, and that we have to protect this not from a paternalistic view, but from a maternalistic. From a
0: maternalistic absolutely,
1: that that is exactly what we need to do. And there's there's a future out there. It's it's just that you know I, I don't personally, I just don't see anybody really caring enough about it because religion has taken such a beating in the last, mm, you know, has, decades. It has, it has. Nobody really cares enough about religion or race. So like being an ethno religion, you're like, talk about obscure, like who's going to care about being a Mandan? you know, if, if you have people who just really want it, who really would love to, because we get this all the time. My dad gets it. I get it. It's just like, man, it's so sad. You guys don't take converts. I would love to be a Mandan. And my friend literally came <laughs> to me last year. <laughs> he goes, you know, it's terrible. You guys don't take converts because you guys would be the biggest religion in brooklyn right now because like oh dude oh yeah like hipsters would love us we'd be like the biggest thing for like a year everybody would have like a mandaian app like oh my god did you get your baptism today <laughs> like did you get your automatically generated like blockchain milwasha and it's like yeah cool you know and it would be like huge in melbourne and berlin and you know it'd just be all over the world and then it would just disappear like that because it's like okay on to the next fun thing that's that's and that's like my interpretation of where these kind of things go because you know the the religion and the the spirituality side of it and people i just don't it's become so much more digitized and individualistic that Mm -hmm. it's really really hard and this is why people are so worried about trying to change anything because the world is so so fickle and we've been so so resilient And the world's been so much more apathetic, moving in an apathetic direction, disconnecting people. And we are a people who love to be connected. So we should not fill these gaps between us, whether they are separated by oceans and countries or just gaps in opinions with just doubt and cynicism and pessimism and just saying, well, that person wants to destroy us. You know,
0: it's the postmodernist way of thinking. I I was heavily immersed in it myself. I mean, throughout high school i you know had a suspicion i was critical of any teachings any work that had an underlying pro catholic bias i was extremely mm. cynical about any text or person that put forward this you know a set truth or definitive objectivity
1: um, Being opinionated is a good thing. I mean, I think yeah, we we, we definitely both agree on that because it was uh, twelve years of Catholic school definitely mm-hmm. definitely, definitely opened your eyes to just how much they can guilt and shame a person into believing just just kind of like you know very very um, I, I would say it's it's the fire and brimstone mm-hmm. you know that humans are innately evil, which is completely untrue. You know, you you raise and nurture hate. You raise and Absolutely. nurture.
0: Absolutely, it's natural.
1: People are, you know, if anything that we know about evolutionary biology is that it is 99% nurture. There is a nature component that you can be a faster person or a more artistic person, mm. or you can be technically maybe more or less compassionate just because there are parts of you and your psyche and persona in your brain that might be passed down because you do not come from an aggressive line of people. If you come from a you know, line of warriors, it still doesn't matter. You mm-hmm. can be raised to be a gentle little lamb of a person because the 99% dictates that you were raised that way. And it's what environment were these people raised in who we are going to you know get in arguments with. And at some point you just have to walk away and say, I really just hope this person finds peace if we cannot come to a rational kind of um, conclusion. Because if we both have different um, interpretations of facts, then we've seen how bad that can go. Mm-hmm. And oh, I, I think, you know, as, as we say, we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bath water and just, you know, just, just getting everything, uh, you know, all twisted up when really, we're living amazing lives. We, we mm. should just take a breath and just be very, very thankful because I cannot wait to come to Australia and see you guys because I got robbed oh, of that chance. Yes. <laughs> I totally got robbed of that chance when I went across Asia and I had been to Iraq and I totally forgot to get my ETA and Australia, basically I was stuck in Vietnam for like 10 days because Australia said, hey, uh, you've been to Iraq, it's a black flag country, sorry, we can't let you in. You have to fill out like a 40 page thing and, uh, yeah, I was supposed to visit my aunt and she was gutted. So well, that I'm quite was...
0: envious, though. I mean, you're a world traveler yourself. You've traveled a fair bit. I feel like yeah. I got robbed off time. I mean, coronavirus, come on. I hate to, like, be the one to constantly vent about this. And I'm not the only one, but I'm literally just 10-20 last August. And I had so many travel plans with my friends. Um, and no. it just sucks that those, I'm sure your travel plans have fallen <laughs> apart as well.
1: Yeah, kind of, sort of. I mean, usually for me, it's, I usually don't, for some reason, these kind of crazy world travel stuff just kind of happen. Mm. For some reason, I've just had this run of luck through my 20s. (laughs) I haven't planned any of them. The only thing I do plan is yearly or just about yearly. I go visit my family in Europe around New Year's or so, Mm. and I spend time with them. But beyond that, you know, uh, I, I wish I had the time, really. It's just, you know, me and my dad running the company. And now that, you know, we are settled you know, uh, learned adults. I think it's it's a really great time to just connect with each other and just have a blast. Absolutely, you know, we should just we should just have big Zoom meetings and parties and just kind of get to know one another. Um, I'm probably going to be setting up a Discord pretty soon and getting everybody on that. Maybe a Twitch or something. Like I don't know what platforms I'm going to be using, but definitely stay tuned because. That's, that's, that's where it's going to come in. But uh, what I will say is actually just on one last subject that you want to cover is navigating mm. safe spaces to criticize institutions and structures. Yes. I think we should promote a healthy environment mm. where if people want to go at it about you know, very sensitive subjects, we should, we should allow that. But mm. we should never lose sight that these safe spaces are being created so that we can come together and just love one another and Absolutely. learn from one another. And our experiences should not be diminished. They should not be minimized. Everybody has been through something and has gone through a, a path in life that we can't even begin to imagine. And I was talking to somebody the other day, and um, she said, you know, something that's really true. She, she, all she said was, you know, my family. If only you knew their story. And I feel like every man, and every person on earth, you know, who has that long memory. Mm-hmm throughout their family says that. If only you knew what we went through to get where we are today. And we have to operate from that perspective. And Who
0: speaks? I mean, that's fundamentally what this podcast is about.
1: And, and you're killing it. You're doing such an amazing job. You are an inspiration. You've gotten so many of us Thank off you, our Daddy. feet, on into the internet and uh, using it for what it's worth, you know, not just uh, doing useless stuff all day. You know, this is <laughs> This is literally what it's made to do. And you've really, um, you're the best. Oh,
0: you're the best. Thank you so much for coming on. And I'm definitely having you on another episode as well. So brace yourself for that.